Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding Podcast, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going great, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hey, if this is the first time you are listening to us, check out all of our work. Go to YouTube, type in Focus Compound, hit that subscribe button. Uh, check out our podcast, over 145 different episodes. If you like the work that we're doing and you would like to support the cause, a rating and review goes a very long way. Also, check out our website, focuscompound.com. Um, go to the premium side of things. Jeff writes about I don't know, it's been doing like what, three to four new ideas a week. Um, so if you want to get access to that, go to focuscompound.com. And if you like free stuff, because free is good, and we're in the giving spirit of Christmas, even though we've given this away all year, go to Focus Compounding on the homepage, enter in your email to get on our email list uh, to receive an email from Jeff every single week on um, one free write-up and a few different things that's going on with us. So in today's video, we are going to video and podcast, we are going to be answering some questions from Twitter. And I tweeted this out about an hour ago. We have, it looks like 18, 17 questions. Um, we'll do our best to answer them. If you want to ask a question in the future, follow me at Focus Compound on Twitter. Again, that is at Focused Compound. And the first question is, given the disparity in the United States versus emerging markets performance, has Jeff seen any opportunities in EM names? Uh, hmm. Probably not because we don't really look at them much. Uh, I was thinking uh, when we were at the Willow Oak annual meeting, some people were asking me like, "So what does that mean that you, uh, what kind of markets you invest in and stuff?" And I said, "There's probably about 20 countries in the world that we would seriously consider investing in, and they're basically developed markets. Mm -hmm. um, that's not really our criteria, isn't that? It'd be you know, quote unquote, developed. It's not an income level criteria. It's more of a criteria that has to do with issues like." Um, Corporate governance, uh, corruption, some political stuff in terms of if we're concerned about government seizing things and stuff like that. But, um, yeah. We don't I, want the country to be ran by a dictator, is what you're pretty much saying. Uh, that might be possible. I, a lot of it is, I mean, it really, though, it has to do with the, uh, with the companies and what they will do, what our protections are for certain things and whether I can trust some stuff. Uh, corruption is a very, very big part of it, actually. Uh, corruption of the business community and stuff. Is sure. A part of it, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. So uh, we tend not to look at emerging market stuff. Uh, have you ever we, looked at a company in Mexico? I have looked at companies in Mexico, yeah. Have you ever invested in companies in I have Mexico? not invested in companies in Mexico. There are some companies in Mexico that are um, uh, interesting, um, and there are some companies in the U.S. and Mexico that have that I've looked at that have certain cross holdings of each other and stuff like that that are a little complicated history. I won't get into which ones they are, but uh, yeah, I have looked at them. Some Got some it. things there's some things that are kind of cheaper in Mexico than they would be in other parts of the world. Yeah. Got it. Uh, I guess we could sort of stick with the same theme here. Somebody asked, "How do you view and handicap FX risk on non-U.S. listed entities?" 
Okay, so in terms, uh, I mean, you can't ask him, but <laughs> I was going to say in terms of just the, in, we don't hedge. So in the managed account, certainly we don't hedge our foreign currency exposure uh, that we would have directly from owning a stock in a different currency. So as an example, we have made a meaningful amount this year uh, as of the time of recording this, which is right after the general election in the UK. We've actually made a meaningful amount of the portfolio's uh, profits for the year. I don't know if the entire it's probably 2% or more of the entire portfolio is just a gain from Great British Pounds because we owned like 20% or something in the portfolio in pounds. It went up like 10% and that was in a matter of, you know, weeks or whatever. That's a such very, a good macro call, Jeff. Yeah, such a good macro call. Move in probably decades or something in the pound. <laughs> but um, but so that is though because of the uh, how cheap the pound was versus the dollar. It's true that I'd wanted to invest in the UK and hadn't for a long time because um, the pound often looked pretty expensive versus the dollar. Um, but we also invest in other things that are um, where. Yeah, we, we don't invest, we don't hedge, and in the managed accounts, we don't invest in things where I don't think the currency is cheap versus the dollar, but almost all currencies have been cheap versus the dollar uh, pretty recently. But that wasn't the case a few years ago. Like a few years ago, we wouldn't have bought Scandinavian companies and things uh, for that reason. Somebody asks, how do you view the E in PE ratio? How do you view the EV and EBITDA in the EV to EBITDA ratio? Owner's earnings or free cash flow? Why? Uh, so maybe let's start with this. How do you view the E in the PE ratio? Earning power, cash earning power. So after tax, cash earnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't care what the earnings will be this year. So if a company said we're not going to earn nothing this year, we'll have no free cash flow this year. But on average, we're going to have forty million in free cash flow every year from now on. I'd be fine with that. Okay. So I don't care what it actually is reported as now. So E. In terms of earning power, can mean uh, a normalized return on like a book value. It can mean a normalized return on sales, um, a combined ratio for an insurer. It, it is generally free cash flow uh, that I'm looking at, and we usually usually use a more conservative measure of free cash flow than other people do. But I would have no problem buying a stock this year that I think will produce no free cash flow, if I think that it on average will produce quite a lot of free cash flow. Okay. How do you view the EV and EBITDA in the EV to EBITDA ratio? We just use EBITDA for screening purposes. We don't really use EBITDA as a measure of what we're getting in value from a company. I mean, really all I do with enterprise value is really compare it to the market cap to kind of, I mean, you know what I'm saying? To get like a a feel for debt and stuff like that. Sure, if they have debt and things like that. We own quite a lot of companies that have some form of float, and so that gets complicated because the actual cash is significant. Um, We don't own companies that have, at, at present, we don't own any companies that have a meaningful amount of debt. And we do own some that have a meaningful amount of cash. Uh, I generally use whichever is the more conservative. So although we own things that are have net cash, I make sure that the price makes sense even if they didn't have any net cash. Got it. Okay, and then he asks owners' earnings or free cash flow and why? Uh, I mean, essentially just the same, right? We, we tend to do free cash flow because um, we're just not... She's the more conservative measure, I would say. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the business. That's why it's so tough. Sometimes when people ask questions... Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough because every other, every company is different, you know? I mean, when we were looking at Points International, mm-hmm. which Jeff wrote up on the website, I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast. I can't remember. 
Did we talk about? We it? might have a little bit. I don't. I know. mean, from there, I mean, you can't look at revenue in that company's uh, right just gross in, profit. in their uh, that business. I mean, their revenue essentially is gross profit, mm-hmm. right? You know, so every company's different. I, I would say so. That's why it's hard to give like a a black and white answer uh, to some questions. Yeah, I would say it's overwhelmingly free cash flow for us, just because we've had very little success investing in businesses that don't generate free cash flow every single year. Yeah, compared to most investors, we're very biased towards things that self finance with a lot of free cash flow every year. Uh, then the same person asks, "Do you calculate a targeted?" slash expected price if yes when would be the right time to buy uh we do on the website now say when we'd revisit it yep uh what we target really is a um return that i expect i mean really what i'm always looking at whether i'm saying it or not is what i think the stock will make over if we hold it buy it today and hold it for 10 years Mm -hmm. and so when that number gets high enough which for us is certainly at least 10 percent uh return and probably a lot higher than that um then we'd uh revisit and buy it so when you see that i need the stock to drop 50 percent or something before i revisit it that's a way of saying that i don't know that it'll return i'm not as confident it'll return in the double digits for like 10 years or something Uh yeah okay a couple people gave us a snap judgment on three different stocks we could maybe do a different podcast on that Uh, how do you know if a company is good to be employed by glassdoor Go to glassstore.com. Yeah, that's a possible one. Yeah. Somebody asks who benches more. We've yeah, already gone over this. Established that. Yeah. <laughs> Ro- what role does in- uh, does intuition play when deciding on an investment? You know, that's interesting. We kind of yeah. talk about. I don't want to say we don't talk about intuition, but we definitely talk about, and we've talked about on the podcast before how you can look at a bunch of different ideas, but you know, relatively quickly yeah. when you look at a company if this is something that you know you'd be interested in, or that it's at least an interesting idea. Just like on the other end of the spectrum, you know pretty quickly if it's an idea that you would not be interested in. Wouldn't you say that's fair? Yeah. You just kind of feel it. Don't you get that feeling? You (laughs) just know it. You're like, oh, you know. In terms of the actual decision making for a specific stock, intuition is probably 80 or 90% of the decision. Uh, Intuition is? Intuition probably, yeah. Um, Backed up by your judgment and by like doing due diligence and everything like that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like your gut is telling. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Uh, the really good ideas you usually know in about five minutes. Yeah. So I that's mean, why I yeah. do agree with that. Yeah. Um, no, I would say it's a huge, huge part of it. The, the problem, though, is that the only way that you can have intuition or whatever you want to call it about things is uh, through researching lots and lots of different companies and coming to those conclusions before passing on all that stuff. Yeah. So it's like, you know, 80 to 90% of the things you look at aren't interesting. Yeah. And then, but all that stuff that you looked at is what gives you the uh, intuition. For totally. Those things. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah, I. You'd be surprised how rarely we look at something for a brief period of time. It looks really interesting, and it turns out we're totally wrong about that. No. Or the reverse. Sometimes the reverse is a little more likely. You could misjudge something and uh, and figure out that it's really different than other people thought. Um, so sometimes some are hard. I, I mean, we talked about Points International. I looked at Points International and actually. Uh, kind of came to a conclusion that the business is quite a bit different than most write-ups were suggesting it really how it works and stuff. So that was an unusual one. I had a really hard time understanding that business at first. And then I came to feel that the business was a lot different than people were presenting it. But that's an unusual one. Mm-hmm. How do you avoid the fact that a lot of good ideas don't screen well and therefore what to look for? Yeah, I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, we, we talk, Jeff and I Almost talk about this all the, this good ideas all the time. screen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we talk about that all the time. That's... Uh, I mean, how do you avoid that? I think it is actually really, you know, you you create a screen for maybe a universe and then it's really just going one by one and actually reading about it and then seeing yeah. if there's anything there. One of the best things to do is to either do a pure price screen or like a pure business quality with no price part to it. The problem that I see with a lot of people is they want to do a screen where they're like, oh, it has to have some Like adequate- the green black. 
Yeah. Yeah. Return on capital. And yeah. But it has to have like some sort of adequate business quality and it has to have a price that's low enough, you know, that's reasonable. Those screens are the hardest. Now, would you rather screen for quality? So like screen for like company needs yeah. to do uh, the average return on invested capital or return on equities above X, or would you rather screen for price? Uh, purely quality for me, but that's because I don't have to make a lot of decisions right now. If I had to buy a stock today, then price might make the most sense. But um, I mean, if, if but we, I really do think like the earnings yield, or that could be a good because I mean shows what it's earning on the enterprise value. I mean that's not necessarily a quality, but that could be by itself just a good screen. And, and yeah, yeah, you know they've be. proven that from the book. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. I think statistically it makes sense. Yeah. And I would do that. But I mean, if you said I have to pick 10 stocks today, I would pick them based on price. Mm -hmm. um, but if I had to pick 10 stocks to research, I would definitely pick that based on quality. I would use quality because I feel like it, um, it continues to have value. Because if you research a good business, you're more likely to eventually get a price that you like on yeah. it. So it just has such a more durable insight that you get mm -hmm. into it. So I do prefer to look at and analyze uh, companies. I really would prefer to run it with no run a screen in terms of what to write up with no price uh, requirement at all. Sure. Yeah. And then that same individual asks, and what can you screen for to ensure that you don't eliminate such opportunities that don't screen well? Uh, I mean, you for so me, for, quality, the, for me, some of the best things to I honestly think what some of the best ones to look at in terms of quality that people don't screen for one is simply just number of years of profitability. I've said that before, but um, the one thing that I find that people really, really undervalue investors is the difference between a company that's been profitable, like, you know, it's profitable for four years, then it lost money, then it's profitable for another five years and it's losing money this year versus a company that's been profitable for the last 20 uh, years, every single mm -hmm. year. Um, it may have had lower returns on capital, higher, whatever things may have changed with the business, but a business that is, Profitable every single year is a business that you'd want to pay attention to at least. There are some that just aren't attractive. I've, you know, there are water companies and things that just never earn a good return on capital. Yeah. Will be profitable every year. But in general, that kind of thing is way better. And uh, that's one that I would definitely screen for is to have a uh, very huge number of profitable years in the past. Also, just a huge number of years where you have a year over year increase in like revenue, gross profit, things like that. Very predictable stuff. Sure. True Focus does predictability things. Yeah. Measures like that are good. All sorts of different sites have different measures of that, but just an extremely predictable, very, very long-term past record. I think people underweight how important the very long-term past record is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Saudi Aramco Investor Relations asks, what do you think of Saudi Aramco, the best, the world's best oil company? You got seven, seven uh, likes on that, so I figured okay. we, should, we should It might be the world's it. best... Uh, uh, oil company. I don't know. I'm, I don't uh, do a lot of uh, looking at oil companies. It's a parody account. So No opinion on it? Uh, the Saudi Ar Aramco IPO? Yeah. Got it. Uh, why do you prefer a safe bet versus one with higher expected returns? Uh, and he says, your style of investing should be ideal for using leverage. Have you considered it? And if not, then why? I've talked about it, uh, sort of warning people about it with the leverage thing. So I've actually done a couple write-ups where I warned that I think people are um, that when a company has leverage, a lot of leverage, a very high-quality company has a ton of leverage. Investors are more okay with that than they would be using margin. And like my warning, like we talked about Sydney Airport or something, is you know that buying a company using six times debt or something isn't that different than if you had an airport that wasn't using debt and you were buying it on margin. Um, 
So I have uh, caution with that. No, I don't uh, use leverage that way. And we also don't generally buy into businesses that have a significant amount yeah. of leverage at all. Uh, financial leverage. They're, they have some, a lot of them have leverage through uh, people providing capital to them, customers and things like that, float, stuff like that. Definitely willing to invest in banks, which can have tremendous amounts of leverage and insurers. But that's somewhat different than uh, borrowing from banks or doing bond issues and stuff. Mm -hmm. and we don't tend to invest in anything like that. Got it. Uh, somebody else? thoughts on uh tho maybe we'll add that to the snap judgments uh podcast that we'll do okay. here today um will jeff ever consider retailers or any segment really as potential investments if they got cheap enough as a sort of asset play situation in my defense technically we own a retailer right now okay it's a car retailer yeah people don't count them as retailers, a little different but, but yeah yeah i'm not saying it's not different yeah. and i've owned supermarkets before yeah. and i would own costco or walmart or something if they mean would i consider a specialty retailer i mean think like um bed bath beyond best buy no um hollister are they even public i don't even know abercrombie, abercrombie Fitch, yeah, they were there um yeah you know no, Air Postel. Is abercrombie. Yeah. yeah 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 there you go uh no i, I wouldn't consider them Here's my question. I mean, this is what I've said to you before when we're researching things, and I really mean this. When I look at a stock or something, the question I always ask myself is, if someone came to me trying to sell the entire company, would I consider it? And the truth is, if I had uh, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to, uh, was in the position of like uh, Warren Buffett or something, <laughs> and someone said, I want to sell you Abercrombie and Fitch, it, I wouldn't listen to the pitch for 60 seconds. I just don't know enough. It's not the area that I would you know, have knowledge of. To own it forever or something? No. Yeah. The guy that asked about benching, he actually retweeted, says, uh, <clears throat> between us, he says he's looking jacked lately. I think he may have me on bench. Okay. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All righty. Um, <clears throat> after 10 plus years of a bull market, how yeah. do you protect yourself in case of a crash and portfolio may suffer negative 50% losses as in the GFC 2008? Yeah, uh, I've thought of ideas about how you could do that and like suggested to people. So my main suggestions were um, when you think stocks are too expensive on like a Schiller PE basis or something to stop putting new money into the market to oh. have some sort of uh, instead of a multiplier, have some sort of number below one, you know, uh, between zero and one so that you put more and more money into cash, you know, because uh -huh. ideally you'd want more money in cash and less in stocks if stocks are going to decline. Uh, and it's less harmful not to be invested when the market's very expensive. Mm -hmm. So it is true that both the value of cash in the near future would be a lot higher in cases where the market's expensive. I mean, I've done research on that and stuff. And there's also it's also true that it's less of a problem to be out of the market uh, when it's very expensive. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to like sell down stuff you already have to raise cash or something. But if people wanted to put more and more money into cash, like that they earned this year and that they would, you know, this month or whatever, and they normally are putting into an investment account every yeah. month, then I think that makes sense. And then over time, you slowly are are allocating less to stocks, and then you will when it gets cheaper again. And I would use some automatic rule though, something like the Schiller PE or mm -hmm. something would make sense. Yeah, I mean, now that that's a especially good there are other measures of sales yeah. and things and stuff that would work as well but just yeah something automatic not that you uh, exercise your judgment on it the main problem is that people are very very bad at getting in and out of stuff we didn't even talk about this really but like why i always suggest people don't hedge is because they'll hedge for a while and then they'll stop hedging yeah and, sure you know and they all, will do that almost without fail mm -hmm. what's your opinion or would you ever invest in an activist slash turnaround situation i have invested in activist slash turnaround situation which one uh, I invested in Barnes, Barnes & Noble. Noble. Yeah. yeah, that was a big Our one. Our boy was Billy a, was in that. That was a very cl close. Uh, he was in... Um, oh, yeah, he was in Borders. Uh, Borders. Wanted, I always get that confused. He wanted, yeah, that yeah he wanted the... Yeah, yep, yep. Um, 
Barnes and Noble worked out much better than Borders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Ron Burkle was the activist in that one, along with another. Um, and that was a big proxy fight and was awfully close to one of the uh, closest proxy fights that you're going to see. Um, so I was in that, and I suppose I would consider it. Uh, generally, turnarounds are not something that we would do. but Probably not, no. Probably not, but it, it depends. If it was a once-great company and something went temporarily, temporarily. wrong with it. Not know. like a, a secular decline, or just like a full-on decline of the business, deteriorating fundamentals and stuff like that, right? Yeah, no, I mean, if there was like... We like to bet on predictability. Yeah. Like, like somebody tweeted to us before, why do you prefer a safe bet versus one with a high expected return? We prefer the safe bet. Compare that, you know, talk about, I mean, we talk, we've talked about enterprise, uh, I'm sorry, um, intercom communications. Yeah. And how, um, you know, that situation is, could be, I mean, I don't know, that's high risk, high return, I guess. I don't know. You know, uh, it's just, it's not a lot more, it's not predictable. I wouldn't consider that a safe bet. Just like I wouldn't consider KLXE, a company that we've talked about in the yeah. podcast a lot, a safe bet as well. The reason is I can't do the math that well. I, I've read the write-ups and see what people say probabilistically. They think. I don't agree that their understanding of the probabilities is... You know, when Buffett talks about yeah. buying a fair company or a good company at a fair price, he's really talking about predictability, I think, is one yeah. of the factors of it being a good company. You know, so I think what we think about as being a safe bet is one that's very predictable. You know, it's funny. Three years ago... I remember this. Maybe it was probably like four years ago when Jeff and I first started meeting up. I asked you what's your favorite type of thing to look at, and you actually told me the Guru Focus predictability measure was one of your favorite, yeah. like, favorite metrics. Yeah, absolutely. When, when looking at a company. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, if it's really easy on the other side, it can work. Just you just have to. I like bets where you can do the math so that you can have a high degree of confidence in it. I bought things in Japan that were negative enterprise value companies that were consistently profitable. Somebody asked me recently how you did that. <clears throat> how you bought the basket. I was like, well, he first got a, a working universe of net nets and then he screened like for ones that have been profitable for the past or forever, right? Or past 10 years. I manually went through I said 10. Business. And then I said that you read the business description. If it was one that you liked the actual business in the United States, that's the where you could, yeah, the yeah, industry, yeah. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Then you considered it for your basket. Yeah. And then once I hit a certain number of stocks, it just stopped because in Japan at that time, there were so many. This was uh, 2012 or something. Yeah. Because so of the tsunami. So yeah. There, there would have been a huge number. So I stopped once. Because it can be kind of expensive to buy in Japan uh, with certain fees and stuff. Sure. Yeah. Uh, do you think investing in the dividend aristocrats when they are trading at reasonable valuations is a smart and safe way to invest money? I don't think that dividends are as good a signal as they used to be. Um, we actually, that's sort of like a buzzword. I feel like now. Yeah, I don't think buybacks are as good a signal as they were. Unfortunately, would you rather a company are. pay a dividend or buy back the stock? Uh, I've said before, I would always rather buy back the stock because of the taxation. No, because if I'm buying the stock, then I want them to buy back the stock. Okay. Yeah. If I wanted to be a seller of the stock, I'd rather they pay a dividend. If yeah. I want to be a buyer, then yeah. I want them to buy back the stock. Sure. I can sell the stock myself, so I don't need a dividend <laughs> for the company. But that that's just you know common sense that way. But I understand from from a uh, capital allocation perspective, the dividend is safer. Sure. That, you know, uh, it's I shouldn't say safer. It's the board is much less likely in the U.S. at least to cut a dividend than it is to stop a buyback. They're very likely to stop a buyback, and unfortunately, they can be pretty bad at timing a buyback. Got it. Would you guys rather fight a horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? It's a very complicated question. A horse-sized duck. Would you rather fight a horse-sized no, horse duck. duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? 
A horse-sized duck. Yeah, one. <laughs> probably, I guess. Although I guess ducks are probably more violent than horses. I don't know. Horses aren't that nice. To be honest, I think I've spent more time around horses than you have, probably. Why have you spent time around horses? As a child and stuff. Oh, really? I rode horses and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're not all that nice. <laughs> no, they're not. I know they're not. <laughs> Some are nice. I have a sister that okay. is into horses and stuff. Yeah. So no, I, uh, no, I don't know. I, I would prefer question. the, the gi- horse-sized duck, a giant duck, to a lot. Yeah, yeah. I could take a horse-sized duck. Okay. All right. Last question. We'll make it an investing one. What adjustments are you making as a result of the new accounting standards in regards to leases? I assume you would not consider a debt and adjust the enterprise value. So this is a complicated one. I don't think we're making any changes, no. but I think that we've always looked at it in much the same way that the accounting works now. Yes. Having said that, I've, I've always said that what I care more about is like fixed charge coverage. I don't really care as much about whether a company has, um, so like if you have a 40-year lease or something, I don't necessarily care that much about that as I do how much do I think your sales would have to decline for this lease to become a problem. So um, we were talking about especially retailers or something. I'm much more concerned with some of them with their leases than I am with um, a supermarket or something. Mm-hmm. Now, a bad performing supermarket with that also as debt can be in a problem situation. But I really do focus on fixed charge coverage, which include and also just having to refinance um, the, those sorts of risks and stuff. So how bad can it get in any one year is more what I look at. But in terms of like what the account looks like now, it looks a lot like what we would um, kind of sketch out anyway on the back of the envelope about what would this look like if it was debt instead yeah. of a lease. Basically, you know, you convert it from. Do you like that they break it down on the balance sheet now? Mm, no, I think it's good in general because I think a lot. I think all investors are looking at the balance sheet or a um, website that's showing them the balance sheet. I don't think enough are reading the financial, yeah. the notes, the financial statements. Personally, I just prefer tons of disclosure about the lease in the note to the financial statements. I prefer that everything be done in the notes and give me lots of detail. I don't want them to calculate for me what the lease is or what the pension plan is or whatever. Just give me a ton of detail about it. Um, so I'd rather all sorts of things about the terms and the minimums and how much is tied to sales and all sorts of other stuff uh, in a note than to really care what it looks like in the balance sheet. I can always redo the balance sheet however I want. Sure. Got it. Cool. Well, that is the last question on our list. If you want to ask a question in the future, uh, follow me at Focus Compound on Twitter. If you want to email me, email info at focuscompounding.com and you can send a question. I will queue it. And next time that we do a Q&A, we'll go over it. I created a separate folder for podcast questions, so definitely do that. If you are watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up, um, and then, of course, on the podcast side of things, leave us a rating review. Check out all of our work, focuscompound.com. Jeff writes about ideas on the premium side of things. Uh, it's a lot of fun, so definitely check out all of our work. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to follow along.